The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you again to Sacred City. This morning, we are concluding our seven-week series on marriage, but before we do, Um, I wanted to make you aware of what we're going to be jumping into next week. Uh, Next week, we are beginning a five-month-long study through the book of Revelation. This is going to be an ambitious undertaking. There are so many ways this could go bad. (laughs) The book of Revelation is probably the most misunderstood Bible or book in all of the Bible. And it's a shame because it's actually one of the most hopeful, one of the most beautiful. It's packed full of awe-inspiring images of Jesus conquering evil and making all things new. Um, and of course, it's, it's the last book of the Bible that's meant to kind of foretell for us what's coming down the pipe for God's people. That we would not be surprised when difficulties arrive in our, in our lives because we follow Jesus and nor would we be fearful. The book of Revelation was meant to encourage Christians to an enduring faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of a society that was antagonistic to the gospel and opposed to Jesus. And then lastly, the book of Revelation is the best place to study and learn about the end of all things, our eternal hope, heaven, or more accurately, the new heavens and the new earth. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, this is what he says here. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this world. See, here at Sacred City, we want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to renew our city for Jesus And for us to accomplish this in any meaningful way, we need to think long-term and we need to think hard about the next world. In fact, the coming kingdom is kind of what gives us a picture for what we're working for today. So to help us towards these ends, um, I have written a brief introduction to the book of Revelation. It's about 25 pages or so, and it covers a lot of the difficulties that surround Uh, reading, interpreting, and understanding this enigmatic book. Um, And our design team, Mackenzie and Kurt, uh, have done a beautiful job in designing it. I am very proud of this. It feels like a real work of art. Um, We didn't want to do anything less for the book of Revelation. Black and white just won't do for the book of Revelation. So we got a full color print here, and it's pretty sweet. And we encourage everyone to pick one of these up. Let me just let you know, we only have 75 copies here in Davenport. Um, We're not going to be printing any more. So if you want one, which you should, uh, you should buy them today after the service. Uh, We're asking that we would limit one per family this week. 
Um, they're, they're $10 per book, just the cost of, of printing the book. Um, and you can find them. I know some of them already told me they're flying off the shelf. So this morning early, people have been waiting for them, I guess. So pick one of these up. I'm excited. Uh, I've already heard from one person who read the kind of pre-release copy that it changed everything for him. He said that he had, he literally told me that he had avoided the book of Revelation for years because it was so scary, so confusing, so weird. Uh, but after reading this little introduction, he felt prepared and motivated to read it again with new and fresh eyes. Um, and I pray that it would have a, uh, that effect on all of us. So you can pick one of those up at the bookstore in the back after the gathering, after the gathering, <laughs> after the gathering. There's nobody there right now. So don't go back there and try to do it now. All right. All right. So next Sunday, we, we begin our series in the book of Revelation. Um, but today, we've got one more thing to talk about in regards to marriage. Uh, but before we do, let us settle our hearts and minds before the Lord, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in our church. We don't want to take this for granted. We don't want to take your presence for granted, where you promised where two or three gathered in your name, that you would be here in our midst, and you are here this morning. You're here in our worship, you're here in the liturgy, you're here when your word is read, and you're here when your word is preached. Father, I know that the words I've written on this page have no power in themselves. They will only produce fruit is if you accompany, if they're accompanied by your Holy Spirit, if you would anoint these words this morning. And so I pray that you would do so for your glory and for our good, that you would help us hear, not just hear not just listen, but really hear what your spirit is trying to say to us this morning. Would you cut through all of the ways that our flesh um, uses to protect us from the word of God? Would you cut through those ways? Would you open our blind eyes? Uh, would you cut through our hard hearts? Would you do all of this so that we could experience you in a deeper way and our lives would better reflect um, those who've been changed by the gospel. I pray that you'd think through my mind and you'd speak through my vocal cords, Father, that it'd be all of you and none of me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Ephesians 5, if you want to open up your Bible there. And um, we're going to be looking only at two verses this morning. The last two verses of this famous section on marriage, verses 31 and 32. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So he's talking about marriage. A man, a male and a female leaving their home of origin, coming together, being united in a covenant of marriage, holding fast to one another. One sexual union, two becoming one. And then he says this. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. In the Greek, it is mega mysterion. That's the word there. It is a mega mystery. It is the mystery of mysteries, this thing called marriage. And if you've been married longer than eight months, you know that's true. It is a mystery. But here's what he's saying, verse 32. And I am saying that it, this mystery of marriage, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. This is Paul's way of saying that every we, everything we have learned thus far about marriage between a husband and a wife has been indeed about a husband and a wife, but there's also a greater reality going on behind the scenes. There's something deeper going on. That the marriage between one woman and one man is meant to point beyond itself to something eternal. So in this past six weeks, everything we have learned has ultimately been about the way Jesus relates to his people, the church. I want you to think about it. We've talked about submission. Submission is ultimately about Jesus. We've learned about headship. Headship is ultimately about Jesus and the way he relates to his church. We've been 
talking about leadership. Well, what, where do we learn leadership? We learn leadership by looking beyond the marriage to Jesus. Sacrifice. What's the essence of sacrifice? Jesus shows us that in his death and resurrection. Covenant. We learn about covenant by looking at Jesus. It's a one-way covenant. His love, he's the one who does all the work for us, right? Priority, he sets us up and worships God and loves God alone and loves the church in a special and unique way. And of course, we learn about love and respect. All of us, all of this that we've learned so far is about how Jesus chooses us loves us unconditionally and is committed to seeing us become the people that God has called us to become. So in other words, there is something that marriage teaches us about God and the gospel. And conversely, there is something about knowing God and the gospel that teaches us about marriage. Paul is telling us that marriage is like a theater where God's gospel story gets played out over and over and over, or it's meant to. Now, let me fill you in on this really quick so you see that this is not something that's only found in this verse. If you, we've done this the weeks past. You go to Genesis, and you see God creates the heavens and the earth, and God creates a man and a woman for each other. And then God walks Eve down the aisle and gives her hand in marriage to Adam. And so in the very beginning of the book, in the very beginning of the story of God, what do you have? You have a marriage. And then we're going to see in the coming weeks, if you flip to the back of the book, you're going to go to the book of Revelation. And what are you going to see there? You're going to see the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where God creates, look, a new heavens and a new earth for a new couple, Jesus and his bride, the church. See, marriage is not just one concept sprinkled among many throughout the Bible. In the words of scholar and pastor Ray Ortland, marriage is the wraparound concept of the whole Bible. Marriage gives us insight into the gospel itself and the gospel gives us insight into the institution of marriage. Now this, this is like a mini faceted diamond. You can turn that bad boy around and look at it from many different angles, but we're going to look at two this morning. And I got both of these from a Tim Keller sermon that he preached when I was in sixth grade. I feel like if it's that old, I can use it. <laughs> these two things are this. One, marriage is meant to teach us about repentance and grace. And two, marriage is meant to teach us about intimacy and fruitfulness. Point number one, marriage teaches us about the necessity for grace and repentance. I believe this to be one of the main reasons so many relationships fail today. We no longer know how to forgive another person. Now, very few people actually say that, but when I talk to people and ask them why their relationship failed or why they're avoiding committing to a relationship, they almost always say something like this, I just don't want to be hurt again. I just don't know if I can trust another person with my heart. See, I, I've been hurt in my past. I've been taken advantage of. Now, what these people fail to realize is that what we're talking about when we're talking about that is unforgiveness. That's what we're talking about there. They haven't forgiven the person who has hurt them, and now they can't move on past that. Some even allow their unforgiveness to swallow the entirety of the opposite sex. All men are pigs. All women are manipulative. Now what happens here is a person's unforgiveness. They think it's protecting them from being hurt, but what actually happens is it makes them more fragile. And it begins to 
roll back on top of them and crush them. C.S. Lewis makes this point powerfully in a way that if you've been around here for very long, I've used this quote probably, I don't even know how many times, a lot, but it's that good. And he says this from the four loves. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Now pause, many of us, we hate that thought right there. To be vulnerable, to be open to being hurt, to be open to being wounded. That's what loving is, okay? Keep, keep going. To love it all is to be vulnerable. You love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Animals are the worst, right? The life expectancy is so much shorter. You're guaranteed to have heartbreak if you love an animal, right? Let me keep going. Well, what do you do? What do you do if you want to protect your heart from being broken? This is what he says. You wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. You avoid all entanglements. You keep your options open. You bounce from thing to thing to thing to thing. What do you do with your heart? Look at this. You lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. See, marriage teaches us this truth almost every single day. If you can't stand to be hurt, don't get married. Marriage is the theater. It's the stage in which this scene gets replayed over and over and over again. And here's how it plays out. Things are going pretty good. then one person blows it. Now that blows it. It doesn't have to be an affair, right? It can be forgetting to pick up milk on the way home. Because here's the reality. When, that, when you forget to pick milk up on the way home, you walk in, you're like, you, he or she looks at you and you're like, I've done something and I don't know what. <laughs> and then they, did you pick up? Oh, no, I, I forgot to pick up milk. You're like, this is no big deal. The, re- the problem is, if you've been married longer than eight months, there's 162 other gallons of milk that, are, that you've missed in the past years, right? This isn't the first time you've forgotten to do this. So she or he looks at you and goes, you've forgotten 162 gallons of milk, and my anger is at that level right now. And the other person's like, it's just one gallon of milk. No, no, it's not a gallon of milk. You got a long string of gallons in the past, right? Right? So one person, things are good. Peace. One person blows it, doesn't matter what it is, necessarily. They say something mean, whatever, who knows what it is. They forget to do what they said they would do. Now, pause. Here's what most of us fail to realize. That this scene that just played out at the front door or in the kitchen of this home is actually just a reenactment of the first two scenes of the story of God. See, in the beginning, God creates, it's all good, right? Creation, it is good. And then Eve takes the Adam and Adam eats with her and they fall and now things are not good, things go bad, right? Things are good, somebody blows it, things are bad. It's a reenactment of the original scene from the garden. But this is where a Christian marriage is meant to be different from every other type of marriage. Because what happens after the fall? What happens after somebody blows it? If it's not a Christian marriage, here's what happens. You fight about it, right? And the strongest prevails, right? The one not willing to give up prevails. Or they, you just 
ignore it, fine, whatever, not, not a big deal. You go away, you try to ignore it, right? Try to make it not a big deal. But the problem never really gets solved. But here's what we have as Christians. See, Christ, Christianity is the only religion with a third act in the story called redemption. When someone else comes and pays the price for our rebellion, pays the price for our blowing it, lives the life that we should live, and then dies the death that we deserve because we're screw-ups. And now we can trust in that person, Jesus Christ, and we can be forgiven, and we can be empowered to new life. See, it's in this third act, the hero, Jesus, comes for his sinful bride, us. See, we're the offender. We're the one who blows it. We're the one who broke our marriage vows to our heavenly spouse, right? But he is the one that comes to redeem and to rescue us. Jesus comes for his bride. He takes the initiative. He leads. He pursues. He lays his life down for us. And how does Jesus' bride, so I want you to see that first overture in the third act, Jesus pursues, that's grace. What I want you to see is grace is the one without sin in this situation, Jesus steps in and pursues the one with sin. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't go, when you get your act together, come talk to me. Now, Many times we do that with our spouse, right? I'm the offended party. I'm going to let you figure it out. And then you come with appropriate amount of shame and grief and grovel at my feet, please. Please admit it, right? That's what we do. Grace is the opposite. Grace is the offended party going after the offender, pursuing the offender, taking the initiative of the offender. That's what grace is. We call it one-way love. Jesus' love for us comes to redeem and rescue, not us down here begging for his forgiveness. That's not how it works. It's backwards. But then, how does Jesus' bride, the offender, how does Jesus' bride respond to his act of one-way love? She trusts him and she repents of her sins. That's repentance. So we see grace in Jesus coming for us and then we see the appropriate response of receiving grace is repentance. I've screwed it up. I've blown it. I've messed up. I've failed again. Will you forgive me? See, the bride of Christ, the church, turns from her sins and trusts in Jesus. Now listen. So for the Christian who's already had Jesus show them love like that, we now have a new tool in the toolbox, okay? We have a new way of responding to our spouse when they sin against us. And here's the problem. Here's why marriages fail. When one spouse sins against the other, the other doesn't respond with grace or repentance. Always. That's why every marriage fails. They don't fail because of sin. They fail for, because of an improper response to sin. Either great, they don't give grace when grace is needed, or they don't repent when they need to repent. Now, PhD John Gottman, he's fascinating. He's got fascinating books, some of the best books on marriages around. And he can, he can uh, predict without, he's a psychologist, he can predict within like a 95% success rate before a person gets married, whether they're going to get divorced or not down the road. It's fascinating. And here's what he, he says this. He has what he calls the four horsemen of marriage, the four horsemen, borrowing images from the book of Revelation, but he's not a Christian that I know of. 
And he says, here's the four horsemen. Here's the four things that ruin your marriage. One, criticism. Criticism is attacking a person, basically. You're always like this. You do that all the time. This is because you're like this, not you, were, you didn't pick up milk. But you're the type of person who doesn't care about me. That's why you didn't pick up milk, right? Criticism, it's different than complaint. It's different than correction. Second one is contempt. Once we criticize and we just keep criticizing, we get a contempt for the other person. They just, I'm repulsed by them now. I used to be infatuated by them, but now because of this sin in their life or because of what I've seen, I'm now, I have contempt for them. Third, defensiveness. When one person points out your mistake, your flaw, you just argue, you just show them what really happened, you just, you get super defensive, you can't admit your mistake, you can't say that you were wrong. And then lastly, stonewalling. And stonewalling, it can be done for many different reasons. Stonewalling is just doing what C.S. Lewis said and just shutting off your emotions. I'm not going to let you get to me. No matter what you say, you're not going to hurt me. Might just be emotionally shutting off. It might be relationally shutting off. It might be just not talking for a, a few days. And, this, and John Gottman says, these four things are what ruin marriages, what ruin relationships. And I want you to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a Christian has ammunition against those four things, that the gospel changes the way we respond when either we've sinned against someone or they've sinned against us. See, when we believe the gospel, when we have this third act of redemption, we see what Christ has done for us, when we're sinned against, we don't have to pull away anymore. Jesus didn't pull away from us when we sinned against him. We don't have to punish them anymore because Jesus took our punishment and Jesus took their punishment for us so we don't have to punish them for their sin. We don't have to rub their faces in it. Jesus doesn't rub our face in our sin. Jesus throws our sins into the sea of his forgetfulness. See, we don't go to our spouse and say, what's wrong with you? How could you do this again? You already know what's wrong with them. It's the same thing that's wrong with you. You are both sinners in need of God's constant grace. Now, what if one person has hurt the other and is unaware of it? If you've been hurt, you approach your spouse in a spirit of gentleness, Scripture says. You give them grace. Here's what that looks like. Babe, I know you've been super stressed out and under a lot of pressure at work, but did you know you forgot to pick up milk on the way home? Oh, all right, I'm going right now. Hopefully that's the response you get. But if you walk in, really? Really? You're missing something. Did you check your phone? Was your phone on? Right? Now you're like, oh, and you're just fi trying to find it. What, what am I? I did something. I don't know what it is. She's 102, 162 gallons of milk mad at you. You got no idea what's going on. See, this is what it means to give grace. Yes, you're, he forgot. Yeah, he, now, is that a sin against you? I don't know, he's probably said he did, would do something, he didn't do it, so yeah, whatever, it's hurtful, it's a, it's, a, it's a hiccup in the marriage. So yeah, it's a problem, right? But you are, your response is just as big of a problem to it. You're not giving grace like God gave grace to you. And for the person who sinned against their spouse, how are we supposed to respond? Well, we repent. Repentance is not a bad word. 
People get so bent out of shape about this. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is more than feeling bad about what you did. You might feel bad about it. You might not. Repentance is admitting you've made a mistake and turning, here, listen, from the sinful person that you are. Now, you forgot milk. It's not a big deal. You want to go, it's not a big deal. I forgot a gallon of milk. But the reality is you've been more than likely very self-focused. That's the, probably the reality. You're, I got stuff to do at work. I got other things to worry about. I'm thinking about kids' practices later on. I'm thinking about all this. All right, I'm just, I'm kind of maybe self-focused. I got my plan, and then she threw something into my plan, and I just said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that. And I am not really putting, giving her priority. I'm not really thinking about her. And so that little thing that gets thrown in here just, bing, just bounced right out. I'm in my self-centered bubble, and it didn't quite make its way in, Right? So you can own that. You can say, you know what? Shoot. I did that because I'm selfish. I did that because I had my plans and I was focused on what I needed to do at the moment. I was focused on what I got to do this afternoon. And so I, I realize why you're mad. I admit I sinned. I admit I, made, I failed you. And you know what? I confess. I'm a selfish person. Now, I have the freedom to do that because the gospel has already told me you're selfish. That's why Christ had to die. I did that because I was thinking about what I needed, what I wanted, and not about you, and I wasn't thinking about Jesus, and I wasn't thinking about anything else. And if the book of Acts in chapter 3, 19 through 21, talks about when we repent, that the Spirit of God brings refreshing from the Lord, brings renewal from the Lord. Now, if God says, when you repent, I will send refreshment. Why would we re oppose it? I don't want anyone to tell me that I'm a sinner. I don't want anybody to reveal any way that I failed them. That's like resisting refreshment. Do you see that? The Spirit of God promises to restore our soul and to bring refreshment to us when we repent, but Christians spend so much time trying to block everybody out. I don't, ever con don't ever bring up my sin. Don't ever confront me in something that I might have done wrong. And we feel crushed by it. Why? See, well, I think it's because we're finding our righteousness in our own works and not in the works of Christ. This is one of the scariest things that I see in our generation. People cannot, they do not know how to forgive another person. And if you don't know how to forgive, you're going to go from relationship to relationship, blowing stuff up and hurting people. And marriage, this is just, it's the stage, man, where this scene gets replayed over and over and over. When you've been hurt, you have to talk to your spouse about that. When you've hurt someone, you have to repent. When you're bitter, depressed, or angry, the best way out is through repentance. I've been holding you in unforgiveness for a long time, and I need to let you know. I hear it so many times. People say, how? How could they do that to me? I hear other people say, how could you do that to them? Anytime that comes out of your mouth, a little buzzer should go off. That's the buzzer of self-righteousness. See, how could, the only way you could say, how could you do that, is if you assume that you would never do that. And when you assume that you would never do that, you are up here, you are the judge, and they're on trial. You are the innocent one, they're the guilty one. And anybody who's looking down at another person doesn't have time to look up. And that's God himself above you. And this is interesting. So what Jesus says, one of the ways that we know the difference, we're meant to know the difference between a Christian and a religious person 
is a Christian has a new ability to forgive people who've sinned against us. That's why Jesus talked about forgiving our brothers and sisters, seven times 77, right? Forgiving our enemies. He's saying the person who's really been forgiven, who understands the gospel and is a real Christian, understands how to forgive other people. Can you do that? Do you do that? See, this is where you can really see the difference between religious people, moral people, and true Christians. A Christian who understands all the way down that we're saved by grace and grace alone, when they see their sin, so when somebody goes, you forgot the milk or whatever, I'm just, that's a pretty cheesy example, but this is what came to me this morning, right? When somebody points out a, a, a place where they blew it, where they screwed up, a Christian owns it. Ah, I did that. I'm that type of person. Repents, asks forgiveness from the spouse and asks forgiveness to God. And here's the deal. And feels closer to God. That's the refreshing that comes from the Lord. I was reminded of my sin. I confessed it and repented and I'm reminded of Christ's love for me in the gospel. And because you pointed out my sin, I actually feel closer to God. I'm once again, my heart is warmed that God loves sinners, that Christ died for me, that his righteousness, not my own, is what justifies me. I'm warmed to it, but a religious person. If you point out their sin, if you confront them with an area they've screwed up and they've messed up, oh, they'll repent most of the time but they'll feel cold to God. They'll feel far away from God. They'll, they'll say things, how could I have done this again? How could I? Now you should hear yourself saying, how could I? Me? How could I fail God? Well, Jesus, let me tell you how. You think you're Jesus. The only one who didn't fail God. See, that's the subtle difference, but the difference between heaven and hell. Religious people don't know God through Christ. See, a religious person is still trying to relate to God based on his works and behaviors. They would never say it. It goes under the surface. They're blind to it themselves. But they're, you, you know it. Because when their sin surfaces, they're crushed. They defend themselves. They lash out. They beat themselves up. Can I ask you this morning? How do you respond when another person points out your sin to you? Marriage is meant to teach us about our constant need for grace and forgiveness and our necess the necessity for ongoing repentance. Second point, marriage also teaches us about the relationship between intimacy and fruitfulness. I want you to go to uh, Romans 7 really quick if you could. <clears throat> Where do I got this at? I don't have too much time so I got to go quickly. Romans chapter 7 Verses two through four. Paul talking here. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Now look at this. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That means if you are a Christian, you've died to the law. You're no longer justified by what you do or don't do. 
Your relationship with God does not rise and fall based on your obedience. Your acceptance to God, God's love and affection and desire for you does not rise and fall based on how well you're doing it at obeying the Ten Commandments. Keep reading. Why did he do that? I'm going to read it again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So Jesus did this for us. So that, look, look, you may belong to another. That's marriage language. To him, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, this is pretty crazy. What Paul is saying here is that all of us, before coming to Christ, we were married to the law. We belonged to the law. That means everybody relates to God based on the Ten Commandments. Basically, they're born into it. You break it, you feel bad, right? You're in that realm, right? There's no, no real grace there. Before becoming Christians, Paul's telling us, listen, we were in the arms of another lover, we related to God based on our works, on our behavior. We wanted to be justified by our good or bad behavior. Many people in our society, we're just hoping that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds and that's what's going to make, get us into heaven. But here's what Paul's saying. When you come to Christ, you were married to the law, now you are married to another. Now, through the gospel, we belong to Jesus. We relate to God through Jesus. Now, here it is. To become a Christian is to become the bride of Christ. All of us, male and female, are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our head. Jesus is our husband. And everything we have spiritually comes through him. Now, does that make you uncomfortable, men? Well, wait, just wait until you see what's at the end of verse four. Do you see how Paul ends his sentence in verse four? Look at verse four, chapter seven, verse four. To him who has been raised from the dead in order, so we belong to another in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you see what Paul's saying here? It's a little strange. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was a command to be intimate with one another in marriage in order to produce children. Now, we realize, right, marriage doesn't produce children. Intimacy does. And here in Romans, Paul is saying, Christians, you have been married to Jesus, but your marriage does not produce fruit. Your intimacy does. Now, think about it. Sally, I'm sorry, Sally, if you're here. Sally is married to Bill, but is intimate with John. Whose fruit does she produce? John's. Here's the spiritual reality. You can be married to Jesus, but being intimate with another. And you will never produce fruit for God if that's what you're doing. So, how do I know if I'm actually being intimate with Jesus? if I'm letting his spirit into my heart by faith and trusting in his gospel promises. It's actually pretty easy, if you know, to know. You do a little fruit inspection. Every person in this room is bearing fruit. The question is, whose fruit are you bearing? got time. Let's go to Galatians 5. Let's go to Galatians 5. I, don't have, I didn't give you this scripture, I don't think. I might have. I don't know if I did. I apologize if I, if I didn't. You can find it in your Bible. Galatians 5, verses 19. 
Actually, I'm going to go to 17 just because. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are, look, opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, here. We're having, here's, this is a good picture of two things to be intimate with, the law or the spirit. Verse 19, here's the fruit. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. This is the Greek word for sexual morality is pornea, or we get pornography. This is the sexual junk drawer term. He just says, if you're following your flesh, if you're being intimate to something other than God, you're going to be sexually active, sexually promiscuous outside of marriage. You're going to be giving into those desires. Keep reading. Idolatry. You're going to worship something more than God. Sorcery. Enmity, strife, oh, enmity, strife. Je now, the first half of this verse sounds like what happens in a high school locker room. And the second sounds like what happens in most church foyers. And the shame th shameful thing is so many religious people, they get through the first three of those things and start feeling pretty good about themselves. Yeah, give it to them liberals. Give it to them, Paul. And then once they get into that mode, they just skip by the last half of that verse. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. That sounds like a jacked up missional community right there. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writing this to a church, we forget that. People who've already claimed to be Christians, but Paul's writing to the Galatian church, listen, who's forgotten the gospel. Why can Christians be the meanest people on the earth? Why can Christians be so full of anger and dissension and bitterness and the church feel like a place nobody wants to go hang out? Because they walk away from the gospel. They say they're married to Christ, but they're intimate with something other than Jesus. And so the fruit of dissension and rivalries and all of that stuff, that's what's being produced in their life. You can skip to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, have crucified the flesh, flesh with its passions and desires. Here's the deal. When we're intimate with the Spirit... The Spirit produces His fruit in our life. When we're intimate with our flesh or the law, our flesh produces its fruit in our life. You may be married to Christ, but being intimate with any number of things. Now, what do you mean by that, being intimate? What, what does that mean? Where do you find your satisfaction? Where do you find your meaning in life? Your what tells you that you're good? What tells you that you're doing a good job, that you're worth it, that you're powerful, that you're good? Where do you find your significance? Where do you find your pleasure? What makes your heart beat fast? What trips your trigger? That's 
what you are being intimate with. Now, when we think about the relationship between intimacy and fruitfulness, this makes sense, right? This might be why you're still so anxious when preachers talk about money. You may be married to Christ, but you're actually sleeping with another lover. You love Jesus, but you really love money. Your love for money is what is actually producing fruit in your life. That's where you look for your meaning. So you're constantly thinking about how to make more money of more money, how to make more of it and how to spend more of it and how to save more of it all at the same time. Psalm 63, David prays an amazing prayer. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I'll lift up my hands. Now that might sound good. It might sound ideal. But if you worship money, here's what your life says. Here's what you say. Listen. Oh, money. You are my money. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Money. I don't know what I would do without you, money. I behold your power and glory. Because, money, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you, money, as long as I live. In your name, money, I will lift up my hands. See, that's Psalm 63, with money as your God. And you could replace money with whatever it is that your heart goes after. See, Jesus says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of it. See, it's another lover competing for your heart's devotion. And the offspring of intimacy with money, listen, the fruit that's produced by being intimate with money is this. Greed, if you love money, you never have enough of it. Jealousy, you don't want anybody else to have, you want what everybody else has, so you're always looking at the next tax, tax bracket. Fear, once you get money, you know you don't want to lose money. Envy, Anxiety. And your love for money will eventually turn every human relationship into a profit or loss transaction. See, it turns consumers into everyone. And once a person gets put in the loss category, we write them off. But when we are letting Jesus into our hearts and minds as the lover of our soul, as our spiritual bride, our bridegroom, when we are being intimate with him by meditating on the truths of the gospel, Jesus comes in and produces the fruit of the spirit. Now, we'll still like money, but our love for money becomes properly ordered it's down the line from our love for God. And we know it's down the line because we now use money to further God's kingdom. See, that's what happens when our intimate love for Jesus gets a hold of money. It becomes a joy to give it away and not a chore. Has that happened to you? Has God's love for you and your love for God made you into a joyful, 
sacrificial giver. If not, you may say you're married to Christ, but your real lover is something else. It could be money, could be power, could be comfort, but you're never going to bear fruit for God if you're being intimate with a substitute God. Now, let's say that you recognize that. You do a quick fruit inspection. Now, here's the deal. You go through the, you go through the fruit of the Spirit, and nobody goes, got them, right? What you do when you go through and you do a little brief. Now, you don't do this every day, okay? If you do this every day, you become narciss- narcissistic. You become, the Puritans used to say, I know, I think, I think it was the Puritans that used to say, when we look at our sin, it's a cesspool, but don't set up camp by the cesspool. You got to go take a look at it every now and then and remind yourself, oh, it's still there. Right? But you don't live there, can destroy your life. Right? You, you, don't, you, don't, you just take a look at it briefly. Right? So when we're inspecting the fruit on of our, am, am I producing the fruit of the Spirit? Here's what you do. You can go through the list. Right? Patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, meekness. You go through the list and you say, am I more patient than I was a year ago? Am I more gentle than I was a year ago? Am I more joyful than I was a year ago? Am I more kind than I See, you're, has the, am I growing? Is the Spirit doing this in me? And if, listen, many times we're going to be like, uh-oh, no, I'm not. In fact, I've been producing the fruit of the flesh. So I've been intimate with something other than Jesus. So what do I do when I'm confronted with that reality? Well, that brings us back to our first point. Marriage and the gospel teach us about the necessity of repentance and God's one-way love, grace. When we see our sin, don't try to hide it. Don't ignore it. Ignoring your sin It's like having a pet dragon in the corner. Doesn't look that bad. Except for the fact that baby dragons grow into giant dragons, right? And if you leave it alone, if you ignore it, it will one day consume you. But it's not enough just to see it. It's not enough just to acknowledge it. We must ask God to help us turn from that sin, turn from who we are. That's what repentance is, is a turning away from false lovers and turning to Jesus, the only one who still loves us unconditionally no matter how many times we failed him. That's the power of the cross. And this is another reason that we take the Lord's Supper every single week. See, every week we sin. Every week we walk away from our first love. And yet every week, here is Jesus giving us himself once again. Here is Jesus reminding us that he loves us, that he's guaranteed our salvation, that he's secured the Father's love for us, that Jesus did it even Though, like, we sin against him, knowing we could never earn it, he did it for us. That's what we do this morning. That's why we do it every morning. Jesus, our faithful husband, went before us. Let me pray. Father, there's no way to be right with you except through repentance and grace and there's no way we can stay right with our spouse except through repentance and grace would you give us your spirit this morning to enable us to repent and father marriage and the gospel both both teach us the truth that intimacy matters the covenant does matter but we produce the fruit of who we are being intimate with and i pray this morning that you would not only cause the light bulb to come on in some of, our, some of our minds, but you would also cause our hearts to desire to be intimate with you, to pursue the one who laid his life down for us.
we'd turn from other lovers, we'd turn from alternate forms of intimacy, and you would produce the fruit of the Spirit in us. May this church be a church whose people bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's that those outside these walls may see the fruit of the Spirit, and we could say, it's not us, it's God, it's the Spirit. Father, as we confess our sins this morning, we come to you because you already came for us. We come to your table this morning because you already came for us. This is a response. This is your bride responding to the obedience and the love and the one-way love of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And we come down with sinful, greedy, self-serving hands and we open them up to you and we confess our need for you, would you once again remind us of your love for us? And would it not just go into our mouth, but would it go down to the depths of our soul this morning? You were broken for us. You bled for us. You redeemed us. We worship you and you alone. Amen.